Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essay speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. We would also like to inform you of an upcoming Sexaholics Anonymous Internet Marathon. Around the World in 24 Hours will take place starting at noon Universal Time on November 29th and will end promptly at noon Universal Time on November the 30th. It's free to register online at www.sim.sexaholicsanonymous.eu. Thank you very much, and without further ado, welcome to The Daily Reprieve. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. My name is Stacy S., and I'm a recovering sexaholic. Uh, by the grace of God, I have been sexually sober since July 1st of 2011, and I'm happy to be here. Um, I'm just going to say real quickly, I am recovering from a really bad case of bronchitis, so my voice is a little hoarse, and if I cough, I really apologize. And this is my first time speaking as a as solo speaker, so I'm a little nervous, too. And you're probably going to hear a lot of ums. <laughs> so, like, I noticed when I practiced, I said um like every sentence. Um, I just Okay, I love today's topic, um, progressive victory over lust. Um, I think that's a great topic for us all. Um, the program gives us a lot of tools to use. Um, the, there we go with the ums. <laughs> the, uh, in the back of the white book, uh, we have what people refer to as the 18-wheeler, and that's a list of 18 different kind of suggestions or tools that we can use um, to help, help deal with lust. Um, when I got asked to speak today, I went home. Well, someone suggested, why don't you look at the 18-wheeler and kind of narrow it down to maybe a couple of those things that you use in your journey. So I went home and I looked at them and I said, oh my gosh, this is hard to choose because I use so many of them on a, you know, on a regular basis. So I really, I really had a, a hard time narrowing it down. Um, but I got it down to about three. And I would say the top three that have helped me the most in, in, not feeding the, or, uh, in, in lust is not feeding the obsession, surrender, and trust. Um, as a quick background, I first came into the program back in April of 2011. I had been actively acting out in my addiction for about four and a half years before that. I had had multiple affairs outside my marriage. I acted out a lot online, sharing explicit photos and emails and text messages. Uh, I had secret phones. I had secret email accounts and secret Facebook accounts. I participated in a lot of activities that were against my moral and spiritual beliefs, and both to feed my addiction and to please my affair partners. And I was extremely depressed and disconnected from my higher power. I basically hated the person I'd become. (laughs) And I also was considering leaving my husband of 19 years and my two teenage children um, for a man I just met online about two months before that. So I was definitely deep, deep, deep in my my addiction. So facing that decision is what brought me to, uh, to seek help in these rooms. On July 1st, 2011, I became sexually sober. And by the grace of God, I'm still sober today. So how did not feeding these, the uh, lust obsession, surrender, and trust help me in my journey? Well, first I'd have to say that not feeding the obsession was and still is key. Uh, <clears throat> I remember I actually attended another essay conference a few years back, and one of the speakers referenced um, an F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, and it says, first you take a drink, and then, then the drink takes a drink, and then the drink takes you. And I love that saying. It just absolutely resonated with me, um, because that's how I feel about my addiction. If I feed my lust obsession in any way, it just snowballs to a point where I'm completely powerless. So um, 
for me, I'm a very visual person, uh, so I like to picture my list obsession as a literal pathway in my brain. And it's a path that's very well worn. <laughs> it's a path that probably got started back in my childhood with experiences there. Um, but it really got worn deeply um, when I started actively ac- acting out in my addiction um, in my teenage years and adult years. And by the time I came to these rooms, that groove was so deep, it was my default path. Whenever I was sad, lonely, you know, triggered in any way, um, my brain just went straight down that path. Um, and it's like runway lights like light up. And my brain says, this is the way to go to feel better, you know. And for a long time, that was the only path I knew. And it was comfortable, and it was familiar, um, and it was easy. Um, but now that I'm in recovery, I am working on creating a new pathway in my brain. <laughs> and that one goes towards recovery. And in the beginning, it's hard to choose that path because it is new and it's not well-defined. But the more I choose that path, the more worn it becomes and the easier it gets to see and the more familiar it feels. And I found that with enough use, um, my experience has been that it does tend to become my default choice. Um, Of course, an addict is never fully cured, so that first pathway is always there. And if I'm feeding my obsession, um, my brain is very impulsive, and that is immediately the the, the first path I'll choose. Um, but if I've, I found that if I'm not feeding that obsession and I have some recovery and sobriety under my belt, um, my brain calms down a bit more. And then I have a little bit more time at that crossroads to kind of stop and think, you know, which way do I want to go? And so to me, that's why not feeding the obsession um, is so crucial because I need to do everything I can to stop, you know, walking down that first path so I can have half a chance of choosing the right one. So, um, so how did I even start? <laughs> well... When I first came into the program, my first goal was to meet the uh, sobriety definition of no sex with self and no sex outside my marriage. And that was pretty specific. Um, So that was, I don't want to say easy, but I was able to achieve that probably within about a couple months. But then the program suggests we stop feeding the obsession. And that's a lot more vague. (laughs) And I was like, well, what does that mean? And and, and that was really hard and frustrating. And I think it has to be vague because, you know, we all have... individual triggers. We're all different. Sex addiction is a very broad term, and we all have different tastes and triggers. So um, that's something we need to figure out for ourselves with the help of our sponsors and others in the program. Uh, But fortunately, the tools that the program gives us applies to all of them. So so the tools are there. We just got to figure out what what our triggers are. So what did not feeding the obsession look like to me? Well, early in recovery, it included having a period of sexual abstinence in my marriage. Um, When I first came to the program, my brain was completely hijacked by lust. Um, I had justified my affairs by convincing myself that my marriage had lost its passion, um, that I needed and deserved a relationship where I felt something, you know. Uh, My addiction had convinced me that the feelings of butterflies in my stomach were more important than being physically present or emotionally connected to my uh, my family and my children. Um, And that's a perfect example of how lust kills love, you know. I was in a place where I wanted sex all the time. Um, I was drawn to dangerous people and dangerous um, situations. I needed constant affirmation from other people to feel good about myself. I was basically an emotional mess. (laughs) So um, having a period of sexual abstinence gave my brain a chance to just stop feeding that obsession and thinking and calm back down and just start thinking a little more rationally. I believe my husband and I practiced a 90-day period which seemed like forever when we agreed to that. I thought, oh, my God. Um, But it was one of the best things we've ever done in our marriage. Um, 
I just, we just had full disclosure and I had just ended that relationship with my last affair partner just a few weeks before. So that really gave us a, both a good opportunity to kind of focus on ourselves and, and not try to physically or sexually comfort each other. And I think if we hadn't had that agreement, I probably would have pushed myself on him sexually to try to convince him to forgive me sooner than he was ready. So I'm really glad that he had that time to really, you know, think about his feelings without that kind of pressure or distraction. And plus, it gave me a chance to, you know, mourn the relationship that I had just ended and also not carry that sexual, um, that unhealthy sexual energy over to the relationship with my husband. So that that abstinence period um, really gave my my brain a chance to withdraw from the lust obsession. And then the intimacy we started rebuilding had a healthy foundation. And that was based on trust and choice instead of one based on lust and insecurity. So um, it was much more meaningful that way. So I'm thankful we, we chose to do that. Another way I stopped feeding the obsession was, of course, to end all contact with the ex-affair partners and then get rid of all the tools that I used to access lust. Um, I mentioned before I had secret phones, secret email accounts, secret Facebook accounts. Um, thinking back, I just I, I can't believe I did it. I literally would be at work and I'd have a chat box open with one person and my phone with another person, and then a secret phone, you know, tucked in my shirt, you know, texting someone else. How did I do that? You know, the chaos, the juggling, just it's amazing. Um, but all that had to go. Um, even early in recovery, I recognized that I was powerless over lust. And in my times of weakness, I didn't want to have those things easily accessible. Um, sometimes the five minutes it takes to create a new email account can mean the difference between acting out and making a phone call. And so I wanted to give myself a fighting chance. And then there were the mementos. I had a sweatshirt that I kept in my office drawer that still smelled like the uh, cologne of one affair partner. And I had a cute little leather bracelet that I got as a gift from another partner. And I found that I had to get rid of those two um, because I could not fully commit to a program of recovery if I was still reminiscing about acting out an addiction. You know, so that had to go too. Another thing I found that fed my obsession was certain types of music. Um, in my active addiction, rap music was a big part of my ritual for acting out. The lyrics were very sexualized and kind of helped me get into the mindset of objectifying myself for acting out. And also one of my recent, uh, my most recent affair partner was a big country music fan, which I don't even like country music, but he was a big country music fan and he would like play songs for me and, you know, sing for me and that, you know, that made me feel special. And um, so I found that in recovery, I found just certain songs would kind of trigger those feelings and emotions. Um, I had a 40-minute commute home at the time. I, I worked here in Franklin, and I live in Murfreesboro. And so I had playlists on my phone that I would listen to, and I, and I found when those songs would come on, just my memory would go right back there. I would think of that person. It would make me just think of that situation we were in. And all of a sudden, you know, my heart would ache a little, and I'd start to miss it. And um, all of a sudden, going back didn't seem like such a bad idea, you know. And I knew that if I stayed in that thought long enough that my mind would, would justify a way to go back. And so... Delete, delete, delete. <laughs> you know, I got rid of those songs off my iPhone, and I changed some of the preset stations on my radio. And took off the rap, took off the country, put on you know the the way FM, you know, get my Christian rock on. You know, <laughs> actually put on um, a classical music station as well. And I found that that I still use that all the time to this day because it's very calming for me. It helps me just kind of relax my brain and focus on things that are important. So. Again, anything I could do to just stop using that first uh, pathway to lust. Um, and then, of course, after the music, I realized it would be a good idea to, to censor some other things as well. Um, I became more conscientious, conscientious about the movies that I chose to watch 
Um, to this day, I have never seen Fifty Shades of Grey or Magic Mike, and that absolutely kills me <laughs> because I'm a huge Matthew McConaughey fan. Um, and also, I feel like I'm the only woman in America that can say that. That was such a huge thing. But in reality, I know I'm not. I've got a lot of sisters in the program that haven't seen it either. So um, i got to remind myself of that. Um, it's just I, I just know it's a choice that I need to make if I want to continue to have progressive victory over lust. Um, I also started to watch what kind of literature I read and the websites I visited online. Um, that's a tricky one. You know, you're on Facebook, you click a link in a, on a really innocent article. Next thing you know, you know, the, the other suggested articles are not so safe. You know? So I really have to watch that, too. I stopped going to certain restaurants or bars that had been part of my active addiction. And then I actually had to make some changes to some of my current relationships as well. Um, one in particular was a male coworker of mine at work um, that had been a completely innocent relationship. I never acted out with him sexually in my addiction. Um, I really just considered him a friend. But once I got into recovery, I realized how much that, that was on the border of an emotional um, affair. Just... I knew every moment I was free, I'd hop in his office because he was right next door and be like, hey, what you doing? You know, and I realized that I really did that way more than I should have. So I had to actually um, change how I interacted with him at work. And then another relationship I had to, to uh, look at was one of my closest friends. Um, she also commuted uh, to, the, I think, the Brentwood area about the same time I did. And so we would talk on the phone every morning for like a half hour. we touched base on our families, our kids, sports, whatever. Um, and she was having some some issues in her marriage. And so for a while, I was like the supportive ear. And then eventually, um, she got a divorce. And then those conversations took a different turn. And they started turning to um, what she was doing on the the dating sites and, you know, all the fun she was having as a single person. And everything was like excitement and chaos. And, And that first pathway just lit up and said, oh, that sounds so fun. You know, and I just had to say, whoa, it just, it was just so much fun. And, and, that part of me just said, you know, remember that attention that you used to get, you know, when you were on chatting apps and remember how fun it felt to flirt with guys in a bar. And that's totally innocent because you're not cheating, just talking to them. You know, that justification starts coming up. And, you know, once again, you know, that lust obsession has started and I'm not focused on recovery again. And so um, I had to I had to distance myself from that friend for quite a while. And that didn't make me a bad person. It didn't make me a bad friend. Um, That was just simply a boundary that I had to to keep where I needed it to keep myself sober. I found the easiest way to stay sober is to surround myself with people who have the same goal. And if that means changing my friendship circle, then that's okay. So, um, Lord knows there's a lot of things you can control, like your friends and what you watch and what you read and what you listen to. Um, So I think it's important to try to do what you can because there's a lot of things that you can't control. Um, which brings me to the next subject. <laughs> so what about those things that I can't control? You know, the things that are just in your face, you know, the TV commercials, the Internet pop-ups, the people running down the road half naked, you know. How do I not feed my obsession when I'm surrounded by lust? Um, for me, the most helpful tool I've, I've learned for those situations is just to not take the second look. For example... I've got a really good-looking neighbor, and in our neighborhood, we have very small yards. They're like a quarter of an acre big, like you're right next door. And he likes to mow his lawn without his shirt on. (laughs) And so I'll walk out of my garage, and bam, he's there. And he's like literally so close you can hear him breathe. You know, like it's just right there. And that's so triggering for me. And if I see him, I know I've got two choices. You know, I can choose to take that second look, or I can choose to just look away. (laughs) You know, and, and I choose to look away. And I immediately think of that saying, you know, the first drink is on God, but the second drink's on you. 
You know, I can't help it if he's out there mowing his lawn. That's his business. But it is my choice if I'm going to look again. So I need to re- remind myself of that. And at first I thought, wow, now I feel rude. You know, I'm being a rude neighbor. I should wave or say hi. But you know what? I'm not a normal person. I'm a sex addict. That image triggers me down a path that I don't want to go down. Um, so, I, again, I need to do what I need to do to protect myself. And I don't care if it makes me a rude neighbor. That's, you know, what other people think of me is just none of my damn business. <laughs> it's just I need to do, again, what I need to do to stay safe. Um, in that instance, not taking the, stink, the second look is enough for me. Um, but I also know that at other times, that's, it's just not that easy. Um, sometimes I'll see another man with the same look or body type as an ex-affair partner, and that will trigger um, those feelings in me um, or memories associated with that person. And even if I don't take that second look, I'll still kind of sometimes struggle with that image in my head or those memories in my head. Hence the word obsession. <laughs> so, and those are the times that I'll choose to either pray about that person or make a phone call to a friend. And um, prayer is very helpful because it helps me humanize that person. It reminds me that they are a precious child of God, just like me. You know, they're not an object. It also um, the phone calls help me because they help me connect with somebody, um, a person that you know can help me talk about the the thoughts that are going through my head and what I'm obsessing, obsessing about. And um, that's just one of those situations where getting those dark thoughts out of your head just brings them into the light and takes away their power. So phone calls are so important for me in those times. Which brings me to the next practice of not feeding the obsession from within. Not all lust triggers are external. You know, many come from within. And a lot of my obsession with lust starts right between my ears. Um, The constant objectification of myself and how I viewed myself as a person Um, The constant need for affirmation from others to feel good about myself. And then, of course, my struggles with thinking about past relationships and euphoric recall. Um, Those are all examples of how my lust obsession is fed from within. Um, Objectification of myself was a really hard one for me to address because my lack of self-esteem goes way back to childhood. Um, And objectifying myself brought me that attention that I really always wanted. Um, But there came a point in my recovery that I realized I'm not going to be able to have progressive victory over lust if I still want others to lust after me. And so I started wearing a lot, you know, a lot less makeup and I took a serious look at my clothes and I cleared out the things that I felt really objectified myself or made me feel sexual. And the clubbing clothes were first to go, you know, my Nashville outfits were gone. Um, But when I looked at my work clothes, I actually had a lot of trouble there because, you know, four-inch heels and form-fitting clothes are totally acceptable in a professional environment. And I worked in an office um, with professionals. And so I kind of looked at that, and I was like, whew, I can't tell. (laughs) But um, I think the first time I really realized what was acceptable and what what wasn't was the first time I wore one-inch heels to work. And and I thought, I'm just going to go with a shorter heel. I walked in there, and I immediately had no self-esteem, and I don't know why. I never realized how much my you know, objectification of myself was tied to how I sexualized myself. And that was just a huge awakening for me. I never put the correlation between those two together until that day. And, and I walked in, and you would have thought I was wearing a potato sack. Like I felt so self-conscious. And even going to the meeting um, that day, I just... I just felt like I was less than, you know, and it's just it's something that I've had to really work on for several years. And and that's been with the help of my sponsor. Um, My first sponsor really said, you know, instead of picking clothes based on how they make you look, she said, why don't you pick them based on the color or the texture? You know, that's one way to do it. And so I started doing that. And um, 
it really was kind of a life-changing experience, you know, like to go and, and I, you know, I can show up today in kind of a baggy shirt and I'm okay. And I've got flat shoes and I'm only 5'2", but, you know, I'm okay being short and tiny, you know, today. So it really has been a life-changing experience. Um, at work, again, I slowly had to change the clothes I wore from the form-fitting dresses. And I started wearing like dress pants and with tops and flat shoes. And I started pinning the tops a little higher. And I no longer wear push-up bras, you know, just all these little things you can do to, to, to kind of change how you think about yourself. And um, it really has made a difference because now that I'm not objectifying myself and I don't want others to objectify me, it's actually a lot harder to objectify others. You know, it's just a different kind of thinking. So that's just kind of a, an added bonus there. Um, I mentioned also the constant need for affirmation was another obsession feeder from internal. Um, That one required a complete overhaul of my social media. Um, Of course, getting rid of those chatting apps was obvious. You know, that was definitely tied to acting out. Um, But Facebook was different. Um, That provided me that wonderful opportunity to get all that social affirmation and attention that, you know, I'd never gotten back in the day as a socially awkward teen. And that was a little bit harder to give up. Um, in my active addiction, I had played a lot of those online games, and I, I accumulated, accumulated like over 500 friends. And so when I posted a picture or a post, like I instantly got like 100 likes, and that just totally fed my ego, and it felt so good. Um, but I also know that Facebook led to several emotional affairs as well, and a lot of attention-seeking and a lot of ego-feeding. And frankly, I was just wasting far too much time you know, following the lives of people that I didn't even know. You know, and most most importantly, it was keeping me focused on a life of fantasy and fake connections instead of focused on recovery and real connections. And so I deleted all those friends that weren't actually real life friends you know, that I actually saw on a real life basis. And I and I deleted all the gaming apps. Um, and I have to tell you what a relief it was to to like not have to stress about my crops dying because you know? like, I had some that like died in four hours if you didn't do something and like to to just let that go felt so awesome and, and it actually freed a lot of like free space in my head and time to focus on the things that were important to me like being present with my family and working on my recovery so um, just another simple way to stop walking down down that familiar path of addiction you know and choose recovery. And then lastly, I mentioned um, thinking about the past relationships and the euphoric recall was something I also struggled with internally. And to be honest, that has actually been probably one of my most difficult struggles to date. Um, It always amazes me how I can feel such gratitude for my life in one minute. And then as soon as I start feeling stressed or anxious or scared, um, my brain wants it just goes back to wanting to medicate um, with lust. And, you know, that's what makes me an addict. That's why I'm here. And thankfully, that's why the program gives me tools to use. (laughs) Um, When I get stressed or lonely, that first pathway lights up and my addict says, remember how it felt when we did this? That feels way more better than what you're feeling now. And it's so dangerous for me to stay in that way, you know, in that thinking and listen to that because my, my addict is an expert at justifying reasons to act out. So those are the times that I really need to whip out my tools. And staying present is probably the big one. Um, it's very hard to reminisce about the past when you're actually focused on the here and now. And gratitude lists really help me with that as well, um, especially because they not only help me um, focus on the present, but they help me focus on what's positive in the present instead of what's negative, which would make me want to medicate more. At that point, if I'm still struggling with lustful thoughts, um, that's when I'll tend to make a phone call or go to a meeting. 
Um, I talk about what's bothering me and share that lustful thought um, I'm, I'm obsessing, obsessing about. And again, that brings those dark thoughts out into the light and takes away their power. If I'm in a position where I can't make a call or a meeting, I'll whip out some essay literature and read. Um, again, that kind of grounds me to my program. Or I'll pray. You know, connecting with my higher power never fails, you know. Um, in those times that I'm really struggling with the temptation to go back, I have been known to whip out my first step and reread it. You know, it refreshes my memory of why I chose to get sober in the first place, because this is a forgetting disease. And I forget, and sometimes I need to be reminded of that pain. And so um, I have done that several times. And I always tell my, my sponsees, keep it. You know, don't you delete it, keep it, because, you know, go back and read it sometime. You might need that. Um, so in general, I guess the key for me to not feeding the obsession is really just having a good understanding of what triggers my lust addiction and then having a plan, a plan in place ahead of time for the things I know might trigger it. Um, for me, that means taking the time to identify my current and potential triggers with my sponsor and adding some of those triggers to a clearly defined sobriety definition. Because it's more, the, you know, as, as Brant said, it's more than just sexual sobriety. You know, it's, it's so much more. It's about emotional sobriety, too. So I added a lot of extra things to mine. Like, it's not just about no sex with self and no sex, you know, outside my marriage. You know, I'm not going to go online and look up ex-affair partners. You know, I'm not going to do stuff like that. I'm not going to have chatting apps on my phone because that's not healthy, even if I'm not hooking up with people that's just not healthy for me you know so adding extra things that you know trigger you and i stress a clearly defined um sobriety definition because again as um shared earlier we can have boundaries in our addiction and they move (laughs) so that line drawn in the sand always moved but having a clearly defined sobriety definition for me was key because it kind of put it in stone i had a detailed list of boundaries that would help me um from walking down that path of lust again Um, And again, it also meant coming up with a detailed plan for situations that I knew might come up ahead of time. Like I did travel with work occasionally, um, and I knew that could put me in some sticky situations. So I worked with my sponsor, got a plan for traveling. Um, I had to have a plan for knowing what to do in case an ex-affair partner tried to contact me, which did happen as well. And I'll be honest, the first time that happened, I choked. You know, like I didn't say the things that I should have said. I, I listened. I talked for like 40 minutes, you know, and I don't know why, but I never said, don't call me again. That should have been the first thing I said, and I didn't, you know. But after that phone call conversation, talked to my sponsor, we sat down and said, okay, that's okay that happened this time, but next time, why don't we try this instead? And, and so then I felt prepared, and he did call again, and that time I was prepared, and I handled it much better. So um, having that, you know, plan just really gives you a lot less room for mistakes there. Um, So where does surrender and trust come in? Well, if just knowing the right thing to do would keep us sober, none of us would have to be here today. (laughs) So, um, but it's hard to make that decision when you're in a place of pain or when you're scared, um, when you don't know what the future holds for you, when you're facing your demons as you're doing your step work, when you're trying to make amends for things you've done in the past. Or, hell, it's just hard when you're just hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. (laughs) Um, And for me, that's when surrender and trust have to come in. When I first came into the program, I was consumed by fear. I had just had disclosure with my husband, and he was contemplating whether or not he wanted to stay with me. And I had just ended my um, affair with my last affair partner, and my backup plan was gone. And that's a terrifying moment for me. You know, I've never been without a backup plan. (laughs) And that was absolutely terrifying. Um, what if my husband decided he didn't want to stay with me? You know, or what if the program didn't work and then my affair partner didn't want to take me back? Um, those things terrified me. So 
what convinced me to have that leap of faith to stay with the program and give it a try um, was going to meetings. You know, going to the meetings and seeing other people that went through the same things as me and they made it through because the program worked for them, um, that helped me build trust in the program. Hearing the shares of other people who were currently struggling, but hearing how the program was helping them get through that time, um, that helped me build trust in the program. And to be honest, just hearing people laugh again. You know what I mean? After going through all that terrible stuff, that gave me trust in the program. You know, And I'll, I'll never forget that coming into those rooms in such a, a deep, dark place in my life. And hearing people laugh, I was like, what are they laughing for? This is serious stuff. You know? And yet now I get it. You know, Now I can look back. and I, I giggle all the time in meetings. But um, that was just so, like, so foreign to me, but yet so you know, promising to me. Um, and that's what gave me the, cor- the courage to give the program a try you know, and trust that the program, it would work if I worked it. Um, trust that if I did the next right thing, you know, my situation would get better. And most importantly, trust that if the program actually worked for other people, it would work for me too. <laughs> and then once I had faith in the program, I really just had to surrender. Um, for me, surrender means a lot of things. Uh, for one, going to whatever lengths to make my program a, pri- a priority. Early in recovery, that meant going to meetings four to five times a week. Um, driving 45 minutes from Murfreesboro to Nashville to hit the women's meetings, uh, missing time with my family in the evenings to go to the Murfreesboro meetings, and rushing over here on my lunch break to hit the nooner when I worked here in Franklin. I certainly didn't want to go that often or miss time with my family, um, but I did because I knew that's what I needed to do to get sober. And I still go to meetings to this day um, because I know it's that connection that keeps me from going back. Um, Surrender for me also means listening to my sponsor's suggestions and to the advice of friends in the program. Um, It's my thinking that got me where I am today. You know, I need to trust that others who went before me know what they're doing. They've lived through it. They've they've worked it. They lived it. And they're doing better. So I I just need to trust that they know what they're doing. Um, Surrender also means taking on new sponsees when I have a hundred other things going on and think I don't have the time or the energy. It also means agreeing to speak at conferences, (laughs) even though I'm terrified to speak in public and I'm afraid I won't have the right things to say. And most of the time, surrender simply means for me doing the next right thing, even when I don't want to. Just do it. You know, that's a Nike saying. (laughs) Just do it. Um, But most importantly, of course, surrender means trusting the program and placing my life completely in the hands of my higher power. Um, It means letting go of that false sense of, of control. It means surrendering my fears, my actions, my thoughts, and making a conscious effort to connect every day to my higher power, all of that. Um, Like I said, my best thinking got me where I'm at today. Um, But when I place my trust in God and surrender to the program, he leads me down the path to recovery every time. And that's the path I want to be on. So in closing, I guess I'm probably really early. (laughs) In closing, I guess I would say the key for me um, for progressive victory over lust has been One, don't feed the obsession whenever possible. Two, when the obsession does arise, trust that the program is the solution. And then three, simply surrender to doing the next right thing. Choosing the path of sobriety um, hasn't always been easy, but it makes a huge difference in my life when I do. Um, It kind of reminds me of that poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson, The Road Not Taken. You know, it's the one about the man walking down the path in the woods, and the path diverges into two roads, and he kind of looks down each one. And he decides to take the one less traveled, you know. And according to the poem, that's what, you know, makes all the difference. And um, in choosing the path of recovery, I, too, have chosen the road less traveled. And what a difference it's made indeed, you know. I'm going to go off script here for a minute. Um, 
I love how Brant and Priscilla mentioned that progressive victory over lust is more than just progressive victory over sexual sobriety. It's about taking the tools and the lessons that you learn in this program and applying it to other areas in your life. And I can say that um, I have seen when I have the trust and surrender and I carry that into other areas in my life, what a difference that's made for me. It's amazing to me to think that just four and a half years ago, my husband and I were on the verge of divorce. You know, we were so completely disconnected, didn't think we wanted to be together. And yet here we are today, 23 years of marriage, and we're closer than we've ever been. Um, Last summer, I'm going to close this up. Last summer, (laughs) we agreed that we wanted to be foster parents. And again, you know, that was like, wow, you've got three years of sobriety under your belt. That's a big thing to do with not a lot of sobriety. But I trusted that this was something my higher power wanted me to do. And so we surrendered. We said, let's go for it, you know. And we gave it a try. And um, I'm happy to say that this May, we actually adopted an 11-year-old special needs child. And I wouldn't have been able to do that. Our marriage would not have been strong enough to do this had I not come into the program. Um, and the tools and, again, the lessons that I've learned have helped me apply that to the, that situation as well. And so it's just an amazing gift that I get from that program. And I don't think I'll ever be sufficiently grateful, you know, but I certainly try every day. So thanks. Stacey.